You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Here is your host, Emily. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Hazel Boot, where we talked about how to significantly improve physical health, or in the case of children, how to help maintain it through altering how we sit and sleep, our footwear and our exposure to different temperatures. Next week I have a different episode for you. It's all very well for me to have these episodes with specialists discussing everything from nutrition to education to movement. But how does it actually look when these are put into practice? I have a few episodes lined up with parents who allowed me a glimpse into their lives. Next week, we will hear from Phoenix, who lives in a renovated garage in Hawaii with her two young children. Today is my mum's birthday. Happy birthday, mum. Before Robin and I began today's interview, I realised he was born in 1961, which, coincidentally, is the year my mum was born. And I said so. In true psychologist fashion, Robin asked if he reminded me of my mum. Robin was very easy to talk to. We took at least 20 minutes to force ourselves to stop talking about off-grid living to actually begin the interview, which itself was, well, in Robin's own words, we went from the sublime to the ridiculous and back. If you don't think anyone remembers anything before the age of about two or three, then think again. Robin gave me a mini therapy session in this episode, so I'm feeling quite vulnerable about releasing this to the public. Living off the grid, our only internet source is through 4G, which works well enough for us, unless it's raining, and unfortunately this interview with Robin was the only one I have recorded while it was raining. It sounded fine while we were talking, but listening to it afterwards, I was disappointed with how the quality turned out. I did my best, but I apologise in advance and hope this sound doesn't prevent you from listening. It'll be worth it. Fifty-seven-year-old Robin Grill was born in Uruguay to Romanian migrant parents and moved to Sydney, Australia when he was 10 years old. He still lives in Sydney, now with his wife Linda, and has a 21-year-old daughter, Yaramin. Robin's first language was Spanish, French his second, Romanian his third, and English is his fourth language. Robin is a counsellor, psychotherapist, parent educator, international speaker, and the author of Parenting for a Peaceful World and Heart to Heart Parenting, both of which have been translated into multiple languages. He is currently putting the final touches on his brand new book, Inner Child Journeys, which has been in the making for over five years. Robin's website can be used for booking consultations, reading some of his many articles, purchasing his books, and watching videos of his speaking appearances. Robin also runs a blog, Heart to Heart Parenting, where he writes articles related to parenting and childhood that can be categorized into world news, activism, inspiring, and educational. In 2014, Robin performed a powerful TEDx talk in Pitwater, New South Wales, titled peace code in the human brain. In his own words, this is his professional adult description of himself. In reality, Robin would like you to know that his life really began at the latest in his mother's womb. That's more relevant than most people realize because to some extent that is still who Robin is, 
why he does what he does and says what he says. Last night he had seven hours of sleep and also a nap today because he is from a siesta country. And for lunch today he had gluten-free vegan wrap filled with marinated eggplant, but he would like you to know that he is not a vegetarian. Robin, welcome to the show. <laughs> That's got to be the best introduction I've ever had. Great to be with you, Emily. Oh, thank you. So I first came across you and your work while listening to an interview with Sarah Buckley last year, and she mentioned your name and your book, uh, Parenting for a Peaceful World. So naturally, I googled you and looked through your website, and the first article of yours I read was called What Your Child Remembers, New Discoveries About Early Memory and How It Affects Us. It was on implicit and explicit memories, and I knew immediately that I wanted to interview you. However, instead of implicit and explicit, I wrote down intrinsic and extrinsic memories in my notes and have been referring to them as that ever since. Needless to say, when you agreed to be interviewed and I told you some of the topics I wanted to discuss, it was quite embarrassing to have you come back and tell me that the notion of intrinsic and extrinsic memories was new to you. So Robin, please tell us what are implicit and explicit memories. I hope I haven't reminded you of a mean school teacher that used to mark you down when you got the, the words wrong. <laughs> no. uh, in, ca in case that's the, an implicit memory for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but back to the question, implicit and, and do you know we have two different kinds of memory that, um, and uh, the exciting thing is that this is becoming in quite quickly common knowledge and it's got some amazing implications beyond the fact the implications for our data are, I think, groundbreaking and revolutionary. Um, and where this discovery comes from is the, the, the new brain science, science instruments that we have are able to take an image deep inside the human brain and figure out all kinds of stuff that we didn't know before. Uh, okay, drum roll, implicit memory. I, I, got a, I got a more cuddly name for that. I'd like to call it body memory because it means... Mm. What, it, what it's about is that we can, we have a way to access not necessarily what happened in our lives, but everything that we have felt and experienced, whether or not, so because that's separate to the normal um, explicit memory, that's all of the very sciencey kind of word. Let's, let's call that storytelling memory. Mm -hmm. Our bodies remember everything that we have felt, even when related to times that you can't tell a story about. And what the brain science has uncovered is that why these two memory systems can work independently of each other is that the central organizing place in the brain for each of them is different so that the amygdala is at the hub of organizing uh, um, body memory. Don't worry about where the amygdala is, amygdala is. Don't worry about it. This won't be in the exam at the end. <laughs> But um, I, I guess what I'm just trying to communicate is these two memory systems are um, independent. The other one is organized um, centrally by the hippocampus. There's all these other complicated things to say about where these memories are stored, but that's not really the point for, for right now. The, 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 the gist of it, really, the takeaway is that although, for instance, you and I might feel like we can't remember anything about our lives before we were two, three or four years old, which is true for most people. 
our bodies are able to recall things that we felt, like emotions, sensations, from when we were six months old, six weeks old, birth. Our bodies remember the sensations and the emotions of birth. If you take a moment to live that land. And at the latest, we recall the, the feelings of being inside our mother's womb from around the third trimester, because that's when the amygdala was fully functional, mature and fully functional. Mm-hmm. So in a real sense, life begins a bit before birth, actually not at birth, at the latest by the third trimester. And why that's important is that things that, take, you know, things that occur in, around us in our lives have the ability to work like triggers so that um, they, they bring up body memory from all kinds of times in our lives. If you've ever, um, you hear a song and suddenly you feel as if you're in high school again because it's a song that was your favorite song from that time. And you don't just remember it like a movie. You feel it. You feel it in your heart. You feel some of the emotions of it. You feel nostalgia. You feel a little bit of, you might feel a little bit teary. Or um, smells can do that. The smell of, for me, the smell of cinnamon immediately takes me back to being uh, Christmas as a little boy with my German grandmother because <laughs> she would make these cinnamon cookies. So the memory's still there. And, and here's where the implications are just so powerful for the way that we live because it means that early childhood, just because you can't remember it doesn't mean it's not important. And, you know, doctors and psychologists have been telling parents that for decades it doesn't matter what happens to your baby because your baby won't remember it Mm. and nothing could be further from the truth that it just alarms me every time i i I recall that that's what the caring professions have been telling parents Uh, it's the most important time of life it's formative we um we have feelings that come back from as as way back as uh, childbirth and before when that's being triggered by something in our lives. So I recently spoke with Dasha Narvaez about the evolved nest. So this relates quite well with uh, some of what she spoke about in particular things like uh, undisturbed birth, positive physical touch and responsiveness. So could you talk, uh, could you please talk a bit more about implicit birth memories? Um, yeah, it occurs to me to say something on the upside of that, that every, I mean, if when you were born, you felt like you came into a pair of welcoming, warm, sensitive and responsive hands. Mm-hmm. If you were held safely, if you were allowed to have eye contact with your loving parents who are at this point if everything is going well, they're, they're utterly overcome with the, with the kinds of emotions that they've never felt before. And as a baby, you're, you're held in that space. You're, you're seen for the first time and you see your mum and, and, and perhaps your dad for the first time, hopefully your dad, and you smell them for the first time. And those imprints are immensely powerful, particularly for the first hour, hour and a half after birth, when there is, um, there's something hormonally going on in the nervous system of you as the baby that switches you on 
um, in terms of your alertness in a way that you won't be that switched on for quite a while. So you imprint on those sensations, they imprint on you. It's a kind of a love potion. There's a cascade of hormones going on, oxytocin. Oh gosh, now I'm forgetting the other ones, but it's like a cocktail. They call it the ecstatic cocktail. You, it's the original love potion. You, you set eyes on each other. You literally fall head over heels in love without being able to tell a story about it from the point of view of the baby. And the wonderful thing is that because of the reality of body memory, all of those profound feelings of being held, wanted, safe, welcome, welcome, welcome to us. You know, your existence is immensely valued. That stays with you for the rest of your life. That's not going to go away until you breathe your last breath. And it can be triggered. The sense that it's the kind of the foundation uh, stone of your sense of self-worth. And, and it, it, it helps to continue to animate you in, in, your, in, in the work that you do, the, the love that you give to your own family, your own children, your friends, uh, even the way that I mean, you, your sense of the place in the world, your sense of connectedness to, to the, the biosphere, the non-human world as well, um, your care for the non-human world. It's kind of this deep, formative origin experience that then feeds your connectedness to yourself and, and, and the world around you because of body memory that stays with you and can be triggered and re-triggered. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you, you want to have triggered and then come up to your consciousness as often as possible mm. because it's, but you know, if it went that way, it's a beautiful experience. Yeah. So can implicit memories become explicit memories? Well, it can be both. I mean, for instance, that example I gave you earlier mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, recalling yourself at the school dance at 16 years old or, you know, a beautiful memory of your dad pushing you on a swing and you can remember the, the narrative. You can remember um, what happened then and what happened after. And, but, you know, the, it's possible to have narrative memory without any of the feelings that go with it, just like a blank movie. Uh, with no emotion it's possible the other way around it's possible to have them both together that you remember that story and you remember your dad and you're sitting on the swing and you're laughing together he's playing he's pushing you on the swing and you remember the feelings of it and sometimes when you recall that if it was a very a memory of a real deep well-being and connectedness with your dad it might even be you might be quite moved you know right there that's body memory working in sync with storytelling memory Mm. okay okay so then in relation to uh positive physical touch and responsiveness from the evolved nest could you talk about how implicit memories are affected by concepts like self-soothing and corporal punishment my goodness i mean that uh, those are by by self-soothing i take it you mean um, when babies are left alone, little babies are left alone to cry by themselves and to figure out their own, their own. I mean, that happens a lot in the modern world. Mm. And, and there are very, very large contingents in the medical nursing professions that I am so sorry to say, but they're advising parents to let their babies cry it out and 
you know, there's even these these highly organised approaches to that called controlled crying. Mm. And then they, when they discovered that controlled crying was, um, you know, got some bad press because it just breaks everything we know from developmental science. You know, they change, they try to change the image and reintroduce it under a different name, and they call it controlled comforting, which is pretty much exactly the same thing, basically. It's um, you know, sugarcoating it. It's basically about limiting your response at a time in the baby's life when they don't have the resources to properly self-soothe. It's very, very minor. Maybe sucking their thumb is about as far as they can go. Mm. They're extremely dependent, extremely dependent and vulnerable on, on, on uh, a response that is contiguous to their cry. Um, babies are also... The reason babies can't wait and it's traumatic for them to wait for our response is that their brains, until you're about 18 months of age, your brain does not have the circuitry in the right place to allow you to imagine a future. So you're utterly helpless. You can't tell yourself, look, mum is a bit busy and she'll show up mm. later on. That, that function is impossible to a little baby. So if mum's not there and you're happy, that's fine. But if mum's not there when you, the need arises in your body for to be held and touched, to be picked up, perhaps to be fed or just carried, you know, you, 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 that, that need turns to despair and then panic very, very quickly mm-hmm. um, if, if there is no response. And uh, that's been systematically done. The way that controlled crying works is um, that um, in babies that are uh, temperamentally more, more um, I guess, more sensitive, more fragile, there's a collapse response that happens in the brain. There are, um, the brain generates opioids mm-hmm. to numb you to the pain so that you collapse and you go into a stupor. You go into a kind of a, a shock state of sleep. It's not real sleep. And it, uh, it's, a, it's a high stress hormone situation. The cortisol in the blood is peaking. So, um, you know, that's, that's not the kind of sleep you want your baby to have. Um, and it starts to recondition the way that the, the body responds, the, the way that the uh, neurology responds to the world. It starts to temper that baby's um, ability to reach out. It's, it's, you could describe it as a, a, a breaking of trust. The world starts to become a little bit dangerous and scary. I don't really, my arms will hold back from reaching out too much. And it habituates the, the dissociative response. Um, it, it's kind of like training the brain to zone out. And uh, when, you, when you look around, look how many... Uh, so the, the body retains that memory as implicit memory. Look how many people around the world, how many of us feel ashamed when we want love, when we, want, when we feel needy, when we want to reach out? Mm. How many of us are too embarrassed to ask for help? We refuse, as if by instinct, to allow ourselves to be that vulnerable. I say we, that's not true for everybody, but my God, that is a very, 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 very common complaint. Yeah. So th- th- these things affect that, you know, we still grow up in, you know, wonderful, gorgeous, successful human beings, but where these kinds of um, early experiences that are painful and that are about the, the, the denial of our needs, where they hit us, 
is in our intimate relationships. You go out to work every day, people think, oh, look, you know, what a, what a, what a smart person and what a capable person and this, you smile and lunch you great. What they don't know is what it's like for you in your intimate one-on-one relationship. The, the things that happen in the bedroom, in the lounge room, mm-hmm. where we all get into so much trouble, you know. I mean, it's the majority of relationships, the intimate close relationships are after the honeymoon stage, you know, filled with conflict and um, mistrust and distance. In my work, it stuns me how many couples I, I who come to see me that have lived together and shared a bed together for 20 years and they talk, you know, they're together, they do stuff together. So this conversation, but they hardly know one another. There's no, there's no opening to each other about their internal world. They don't ask each other, how do you feel? They, they, um, there's no exchange of that emotional authenticity at all. Uh, and, and they don't realize why they're having so much trouble with each other. Right, yeah. You know, it's, it's like quite collectively we've been broken when it comes to trust, reaching out and really, really and listening mm-hmm. and really allowing the other person to be who they are, listening to the other person, asking about how they feel. That, that's, that's just been so terribly broken in our society. And we're, we're um, desperately afraid to get that close. And, and that is full of body memory. Because in most normal early childhood that, you know, people have, my generation and also yours, most of us experienced some pretty scary moments of, of abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, most mums and dads were being told, look, when your baby cries, that's annoying to you. Put your baby in another room and walk away. Mm-hmm. It's the majority of people that were doing that. So we are, I don't know how else to put it, but we are, um, I think it's quite normal for us to be quite traumatized by those experiences oh of course and um if this is scary to hear it doesn't mean that healing is not possible it's it's imminently possible there's a thousand ways and approaches for for healing those places and for bringing to us the you know new body memory new ways of loving body memory that um, start to have a very, very deep impact at the level of the nervous system, at the level of the gut. Healing is, is very, very possible. But what happens is that if we don't tell the truth about our wounds and our fear and our hurt and our anger, if we don't tell the truth to ourselves about that, that's what blocks the healing. We can't step forward without acknowledging these things. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to share a personal story here that I think is very relevant. So please bear with me. Sure. For for as long as I can remember, I have always hated the vacuum cleaner. Like I'm not scared of it, I just despise hearing it. But if you say something like this as a teenager though, it's seen it's just seen as a rebellion against helping out around the house. Yeah. But it was nothing like that at all. And I was in uh, mid-twenties before I was able to actually put into words that it wasn't that I disliked the sound. It was that as soon as a vacuum cleaner was turned on, I would just instantly feel angry, like my blood pressure had suddenly risen. 
And even though I'd feel some relief once it was turned off, I'd still feel, feel angry. And I mentioned this to my family a couple of years ago and my parents both laughed and they said, well, that's funny because when you were a baby, you would fall asleep to the sound of a vacuum cleaner. And that was my aha moment because I had, I'd already completed my degree in psychology and child development by then, but it had never crossed my mind until that point because I knew that I had been a colicky baby and I also knew it was still common practice back then for, or like you've just said, um, parents, my own included, to use the self-soothing, cry-it-out sort of method to help a baby fall asleep. So I can imagine, I don't know who it was, um, my mother, my father, grandmother, or some other relative, maybe even collectively, had changed my nappy, fed me, cuddled me, put me in my cot, but couldn't understand why I was still crying and not falling asleep. Whether whoever it was was getting stressed that they still needed to clean the house, or whether it was just to drown out the crying that they didn't know how to stop, they turned on the vacuum cleaner, and when they came back, I was asleep. And because of the end result, they likely that likely became a common practice. The vacuum cleaner would come on, I would stop crying and maybe fall asleep. They probably thought they'd discovered a neat trick, but in reality, like you've just described, my baby self had learned to associate the sound of a vacuum cleaner with no one coming to comfort me and would stop crying and fall asleep to conserve their energy, which is why to this day I despise the sound of a vacuum cleaner and also the ventilation fan above the stove because it sounds so similar because I just instantly feel stressed whenever I hear them. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You didn't want a, you didn't want a roaring machine, for goodness sakes. You wanted a person that you, you know, you wanted family to come and be with you. Yes, just to, to hold you or <laughs> let you know that you're safe when you fall asleep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk, do you want to have a brief moment to, to look at, because uh, I, I want to share with you something that I think is really cool that you could do uh, about your relationship with um, a vacuum cleaner. Not because I think you'll be better off being able to use one, but <laughs> <laughs> but just in terms of your, your personal healing, if I if I may. Yeah, yeah. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Are you when when somebody switches on the vacuum cleaner and up comes the noise? Mm-hmm. What as well as how it really pisses you off. Are you aware of any impulses, things that your body wants to do with that experience? I think, I don't really know of any impulses. I just know that I want to get away from it. So usually if someone turns it on, I leave the room or just I make sure that I'm not in the house when the vacuum cleaner is on. So in terms of, um, and don't worry, I'm not going to do a big therapy thing on you. Yeah, yeah. But, um, um, you know, in terms of the anger that you feel when you hear it, what you want to do is is, uh, run from it. Yes, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I would really recommend that you play with that. You probably do it, do it already, but just do it really consciously. Run angrily away from the thing, really, sort of to really live out a passionate rejection all the way to the end of um, how rejecting you feel towards that horrible noise and the machine and everything it represents. Oh, okay. Run in disgust machine. Yeah. But live it out, really. You know, live it dramatically and beautifully and fully. I, I had a completely different guess of what you were going to say. You surprised me. Oh. Because I thought you were going to say, God, I want to kick, kick that thing to bits. Oh, no, I don't. Maybe turn it off, but, yeah, turn it off or get away from it. I just don't want to hear it. Yeah, make it stop. Yeah. Well, 
bring bring all of um, just whatever whatever naturally wants to happen in your body. That's the clue to what would fulfill the impulse. And you'll find that that can feel really delightful and fulfilling, almost to the point that it'll trigger. It'll be less. Uh, um, you disempower the trigger. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, where we live right now, we don't have a vacuum cleaner or a ventilation fan. We've, we've set ourselves up so we don't need those. But it's only when we go back to the city that I have to deal with it now. Well, you know, it's, of course, it's not really going to be important in your life to heal your relationship to vacuum cleaners. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, fundamentally, this isn't about the hoovering, is it? No, no, no. It's that relationship. It's about your, yeah, it's what wants the healing is your right as a human to express your needs and to be validated and heard. Yes, yeah. The vacuum cleaner is kind of like a, yeah, it's a, a represents that. It's a forum. Mm. I just want to, in a way, uh, I guess where I'm coming from right now is uh, I, I want to reassure anyone listening that there's healing. Mm. And, and, and the way of healing is already inside the... the um, it's in our bodies. It's in, it's in what our bodies want to do with the experience. There's wisdom in that. If we give that a safe way to be expressed. So we're not doomed. Just because we are traumatized, yeah. that does not mean we're doomed. And we're all worth it. We're worth that level of attention. In a way, just about everybody, I think, is kind of trying to play catch up with all of the... Uh, you know, on the one hand, the love that we're full of and the love that we give reflects the loving experiences that we had because that's in body memory. Simultaneously, we've all got these wounds and we're trying to play catch up. We're trying to complete something that was arrested in a way, mm. you know, in somewhere. Everyone's got a different story. Your story, my story. Mm. No, thank you. To me, that kind of sums up the human condition. Yeah. I'll be using that. Thank you. So I guess I'm sharing that um, personal example because I know that the notion of babies' bodies remembering things can seem far-fetched. And until I had realized this implicit memory of my own, it had been difficult to really understand it. So, so I think maybe to follow on from that, I wonder if I can ask you about a very common implicit memory. Uh, could you talk about the sexualization of breastfeeding? I think I've heard you talk about it before, about how um, because breastfeeding is no longer continued uh, until a child is about four years of age, that sort of abrupt stopping or weaning is then turned into like that sexualization for adults and you know, breasts are something that nobody wants to see or touch or know that a child is suckling on. Yeah, now I, I think that there's a few complex factors in the mix but but um you know gosh the, the let's see how about nutshell i can be about this because it's important to look at the history it really it really explains something that breastfeeding was um there was a kind of a um ceaseless campaign to get rid of it driven by companies that um I mean, they, they realized it was a, literally a cash cow to make artificial formula. Mm-hmm. Um, and historians of, of this have, have traced it all back. And it's, it's just uh, it's remarkable 
how how marketeers were presenting formula companies for decades. They were going into literally to every hospital on the, on the planet in every country on earth and giving out artificial formula for free and little by little, but but um, in in amazingly rapid historic time, um, uh, breastfeeding was almost destroyed. And as you know, it's um, mothers learn because there's, there's a, a, it's instinctual, but there's also some skill involved. There's quite a bit of there's, there's a knowledge base. Mothers learn breastfeeding from elders. You know, sometimes it doesn't go exactly according to plan, and it it only survives because that there are other you know grandmas and aunties around to give advice and to give support as well. Not just the advice, but the support, so that mothers aren't drained physically, uh, emotionally. Um, so it, it's just been hammered. The most natural thing in the world is being hammered, and um, it, it's it's one of the major reasons why we have a dramatic epidemic of diabetes around the world. Um, a lot of research shows that that um, early weaning, very early weaning, or no breastfeeding at all, is a is a great risk factor for developing diabetes later in life. So when you, when you imagine that in, in, a, in a normal, healthy world, every time you go out in the street, everywhere, in a bus, in a cafe, in a movie theater, everywhere you go, there's somebody breastfeeding. Mm. So that it, it becomes as normal as people shaking hands and saying, how do you do? And, 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 um, and a beautiful thing, um, a loving thing to see that connection, that deep, deep connection everywhere, and, and it's disappeared. It's, uh, it's unfamiliar, unfamiliar. And so in a collective sense, we've lost touch with, with what that is. And for men in particular, um, it's very, very triggering for men. And this is a problem for a lot of, a lot of couples, a lot of fathers who, who um, if things go well, in terms of latching on, the father will get to be a witness to his baby very lovingly and lavishingly receiving the very, very thing that he was denied. Mm. And um, it is emotionally very hard work to be taken from the breast as a baby. There's babies go through um, not just the grief, they go into a very deep rage. If you've ever seen a little baby, they scream in rage when they when their needs aren't met. It's, the faces will go red. It's actually a rage scream, and we retain the body memory of of that. And um, you know, it's not just breastfeeding that gets sexualized. Um, and I don't want to in any way reduce the, the beautiful sensuality of the human body and and the eroticism of just Adult to adult, of course, the breast is a, an erogenous zone. And most of your body is. Mm-hmm. Most of our bodies are and, and, and with different flavors, I guess. However, on top of that, there's a massive overlay of, um, you know, men get overstimulated by seeing, you know, the suggestion of the breast. You know, it's not difficult to understand when something that, 
was your lifeline was taken from you as a baby. You'll be obsessed by that for the rest of your life. Mm, of course. Over and above just the natural uh, erogenous kind of potential for, for, of, of a woman's breast that, that on top of that, and, and, and then dads are also a reminder, you didn't get this. So um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of couples uh, go through this period of conflict where dads get frustrated and start pressuring the mum, when are you going to give that up? and not getting to sleep. Um, dads, there's a, there's a great statistical epidemic of dads leaving at that point. They feel jealous. They feel excluded. The more they push, the more mums turn away from them as well. There's all these kinds of dynamics. It's really like the couple's conflict are about the, the one partner's um, unresolved body memories of early childhood fighting against the other partner's unresolved body memories of early childhood. It's sort of like trauma versus trauma. Mm, yeah. And so no wonder so many relationships fall apart when when the baby comes mm. just like your vascular story yeah you know you, you you know that you hate the same thing and, and it just fills you with anger but you had no idea why mm. up until you heard the story through somebody else yeah i've also read your article co-written with your colleague beth mcgregor good child at what price Yep. The secret cost of shame. So if you don't mind, mm. you read out the first couple of sentences for the listeners. My goodness. You know, I haven't read this for years. I've got it right in front of me because you, uh, you asked me to. <laughs> and um, this is one of our early articles. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. Five-month-old baby is lying in his mother's arms. He's close to sleep, then wakes and begins to grizzle. His mother tells him he should stop being a naughty boy and that she will be cross with him if he doesn't sleep. An 18-month-old child is taken to a restaurant with her father and uncle. The father goes to the bar, leaving the child with the uncle at the table. The child gets down from the table to follow her father. She's grabbed by her uncle and told that she's a bad child and to stay in her chair. She looks around worriedly to her father. At an adult's birthday party, a six-year-old is awake long past his bedtime. He is running around the hall with the helium-filled balloons. His father yells at him to leave the balloons alone, tells him to stop being a troublemaker. What did these children learn from these experiences? Thank you. So these events, the first two especially, could cause implicit memories, right? Everything we've experienced causes implicit memories. Everything. It's, it's all there. And, and this, you know, those experiences are triggered when, when later on in life, you can be 50, 60, 70 years of age. Hmm. And when something a little bit similar happens, it hits that shame button. All of those deep feelings of, I knew I was a bad person all along, that, that comes flooding up. Wow, yeah. Shame is mostly memory. Shame, the shame that you feel is mostly, you and I, that we all feel, hmm. mostly a memory of shame. And uh, quite often, it's a memory that's been lost. The, the story is being lost to us. We don't have the, the, the uh, explicit memory, the narrative memory, but, but it's there to be reawakened a lot, and we relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I really, um, I just, yeah, I really like how well they're used to de demonstrate the common misconceptions of a bad child. I wondered if you could talk some more then about shame and good children. Well, shame, the shaming of children is, is a time-honoured device in just about every culture. Um, and a lot of my research for my first book was looking at how people have been raising children in, um, in cultures throughout history and around the world. And um, shame is present just about everywhere. But the, the intentional shaming of children, it's, it's a kind of a, it's just a version of the stick punishment. Mm. And uh, it's, we, we're all born with the ability to feel shame. Um, but it's exploited culturally for control, for behavioural control. So I guess the definition is, just to, to, to keep it real simple, is, um, is a negative thing that I tell you about you as a person, not your behaviour, but about you as a person. And of course, shaming isn't always done through language. Often it's a shaming look. Mm, mm -hmm. If you ever remember, you know, your school teacher um, regarding you over the top of their glasses perched on their nose, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. And you suddenly know that you are worthless or that you're, or that you're you know, a terrible individual who's darkening the, the room mm. with your presence. Oh, that's funny. And, and shame makes you shrink. It makes us smaller. We will feel, you know, a lot of people describe shame as I wanted to crawl under the carpet and disappear. Yeah. Very, very close relative to embarrassment. Except shame, the, shaming is directed at you from the elders. Incredibly toxic. Incredibly toxic. Um, it gets confused with humility, which is healthy and absolutely necessary. Without humility, we get um, arrogant and we trample on other people. We, we become insensitive. Um, humility is being grounded, it's maintaining a sense of our own size and not getting big-headed, kind of the opposite of an American politician, <laughs> for instance. Is what humility humility is, mm. um, and it's a beautiful state. Actually, brings you back to your heart. It gets really confused in the dialogue and in the discourse. It gets confused with shame. Shame is, um, or at least the way that I use the word, is a toxic kind of imposition, and it comes back at us as voices. Um, you know, someone like that would never love someone like me. Or uh, I'll never get that right. I'm, I'm I'm the kind of person that can never do that. Mm. Um, you know those voices, the very uh, caustic kind of voices that they replay and they replay and they replay. There's so many. My goodness, um, common kind of programs that people have. Like God, typical me. Why can't I? Blah 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 blah. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I mean, no, it, 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 to the point that it's violent, it's verbally violent. So, uh, yeah, and that's, that. I find ways of shaming children in, in just about every culture as a kind of a shortcut 
to control when, you know, because children's behavior can be very, very difficult. And um, by definition, by definition, mm-hmm. they're difficult little people to, to live. They're difficult flatmates to live with. Um, and so we get angry, we get desperate, particularly when we're really stressed and we stop being, we stop listening to them, we stop, we lose track of how to set boundaries in, in an assertive way. Because we do need to make demands from our kids of, of, of um, respect, collaboration. Um, but we've lost the ability to be assertive, to use a strong voice and to really make eye contact. What we do instead is this kind of an sh- easy shortcut that's basically, you know, the way that we shame our kids and tell them how naughty they are or how bad they are or stupid or whatever it is that the script is, it, if you listen to your own voice, you'll find that, that through that process of body memory, it comes right out of the script of someone of a role model that you had when you were the same age as your child. Mm. We, we shame our kids along a similar kind of a pattern of how our elders shamed us. We carry the shame and right, right next to the shame is the rage that we feel about having been shamed and then we pass it on unless we're, you know, the, the answer to this is to become aware, to, to understand our own, our own implicit memory and what we need to do to heal that. So, so consciousness, being self-aware is the key. Otherwise, we're just automatically acting, acting out onto our kids mostly through the process of shaming them the same way that we were once shamed. And that's pretty much all of it. Hey, you know, that, that, that's, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to meet somebody that doesn't have a story around shaming and being shamed. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. We'll, m- we'll move on now from um, shame and implicit memories. So our first interaction happened when I commented on a Facebook post of yours highlighting the downfall of the environment at the hands of our civilization. So could you please talk about the current state of the planet and how this has been affected by the way children are treated? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, where to begin? Where to begin? Because I have so much that I would want to say about that, more than you could fit in one podcast. We, we are treating, you know, I don't need to tell you this, we're treating our planet in an almost suicidal way. Mm. We're really putting the very survival of our species into question. And it's no longer dramatic to say that. It's no longer an exaggeration. That is what the scientists are saying there, the climate scientists and more. And they are usually a timid, understated bunch. When the scientists start talking in those terms, it's time to really, really, really wake up and stop what we're doing. So we're smashing the place and we call it the economy. When you really look at the way that we treat our environment, the way that we produce, to me it sounds exactly like someone that stopped growing up at the point of being a toddler, about three or four or five years old. Mm -hmm. It's at the very heart of the way that we do our economy, and by the way, don't ever let anyone tell you 
that this is just how it is and there's no alternative. It's, it's patent nonsense. Mm. Um, we have we have developed one particular narrow vision of capitalism and commerce that I think is deeply symptomatic of how terribly shamed and punished we have been. There, there's nothing about capitalism as we are displaying it that involves responsibility or love. Um, it is a zero empathy zone. The, the, the DNA, the, the core of neoliberalism, which is what we're now doing, mm-hmm. uh, is deregulation, okay? If I have a big business, I feel, because I'm really emotionally a toddler that never grew up, I was so humiliated by mummy and daddy telling me what I can't do and so enraged by mummy and daddy telling me that I'm bad and to go to my room and no, you can't do this and no, you can't do that. And that now I, what, what I long for is a place where there's no rules. It's called deregulation. It's a, it's a policy, deregulation. They rationalize it by saying deregulation is good for the economy because you don't want to hamstring the uh, corporations. And if they can, if you let them do whatever the hell they want with no rules, they can poison the atmosphere completely destroy our climate, mow down entire forests and plasticize the ocean with no restraint, no responsibility. That's the planetary equivalent of never having a boundary in your relationship with your toddler. And I hear the way business people talk about uh, um, deregulation and the way that politicians talk about it. It's about an immense, profound, monumental narcissism I am not accountable to anyone. In the name of business, I can do whatever the hell I want. No one gets in the way. There's a visceral hatred of um, ecologists and what is you know, dismissively referred to as greenies, like somebody that wants to say, come on, let's love this place, let's look after it, it feeds us. You know, that, that's, you know, that's the equivalent of you know, bad mummy coming to tell us we've you know, we, we got to put our toys away and go upstairs to our room. So it's like we, you know, I say we, a, a great sort of a critical mass of people never really grew up, never became adults. Do you remember if you've ever been around a three-year-old, you'll be very familiar with the, with the stage of it's mine. <laughs> My three-year-old student right now. Yeah, yeah you're a three-year-old and, and they hate it when you take something away and you say share that. I'm not sharing it. This belongs to me. You belong to me. The floor is mine. You know, your left leg is mine. It's mine. And they get, and they're outraged if you should ever have the temerity to suggest otherwise. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's part of what makes them difficult little beings to be with. But we, we, that's all of us. Yeah. We were all that. It's a stage that we all must pass through of, of being both incredibly narcissistic where the whole universe is about me and you're there for me. You're there to serve me. And also feeling incredibly potent and powerful. Like, you know, if anyone takes my toy away, you'll be hearing from me and my lawyers for a long time. Okay, imagine what is the difference emotionally, really, between a three-year-old and a a self-entitled corporate raider? Mm. This is mine. I I will take it. And, you know, we've made laws that protect that principle. You know, my God. 
we have all of the technology necessary and it's getting better and better every week to set this right. But the thing is that the big toddlers that run the place are hell-bent on never letting progress unfold because that means giving away the toy, giving away the uh, that immense kind of um, self-importance, that position, that godlike position that they demand to hold in society. And coupled with that, it's not just, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger of blame at corporate executives and much as I would love to, but that's the immature part of me. Uh, not just executives, by the way, because they're also beholden to speculators, the shareholders that couldn't care less about the well-being of a corporation. They just want to make money off of it. Yeah. And that puts a noose around the, the, the corporate executive's neck. Because if you want to lower your profit so you can save a tree, your shareholders will punish you mercilessly because the shareholders don't care about that tree either. They just want their, it's minus, minus, minus. So in a way, look how many of us are complicit. You know, big fellas with big suits that can thump a table, if you're someone that felt incredibly insecure and abandoned and frightened as a child, your risk of being the person that runs to that kind of table-thumping leader for security, if you're carrying a lot of unresolved fear, alienation, isolation, loneliness, emptiness from your own, you know, abandoning experiences that you had as a child. So it's not just the sociopathic leader, it's the tens of thousands of people that fall into their thrall and vote accordingly. So it's a kind of a collection, a kind of um, a combination of these symptomatic things from broken childhood that has created the society that is now plowing the surface of the earth to death, mm. basically. That, you know, so that's, um, that's my short way of answering your question, Emily. <laughs> um, I, there, there's a lot more that can be said, but yeah, that's it for now. Mm, of course. Yeah. Mm. To follow on from that, what is a major conception that people have about the deterioration of the planet and what that means for children in the coming decade? A major misconception. Mm. One of the misconceptions that I'm most worried about is, is um, that it isn't real and that it isn't really happening and, and that we aren't in trouble. And that happens because, especially for people that have suffered quite a bit of trauma and shock in their lives, the, the body learns how to go numb in the face of a perceived threat. And that numbing dissociative state in terms of the behavioral side of it, we call it denial. You're familiar with that term. Mm -hmm. We go into denial. It's sort of like putting your hands over your ears and going la, 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 la. Because if there's a lot of unresolved trauma and the kind of trauma that's about fear, right? Fear and shock. We feel as if we don't have the resources to face a threat. So we go into a pretend. And the, the human brain is very, very good at doing that. But um, even though that makes us feel better, whatever story we tell ourselves, oh, look, somebody will come and take care of it. They'll invent a great big magical solar thing that will, you know, whatever, clean up the atmosphere, mm. get rid of all the plastic. There'll be a, a an ant or a fungus that can eat all the plastic and they'll invent it. They, you know, we, you know, it's a very childlike state of consciousness. Yeah. 
You know, we imagine this magical day, somebody in a white coat, like a big daddy or a big mummy that will come and save us all by inventing the thing that will clean it all up. I think that's a kind of a Mary Poppins fantasy. It, it, it disables us. It just switches us off from our potency and our agency. Uh, that's the, the greatest misconception that worries me now is that we're all okay and it's all going to be okay. Mm. It, it isn't. It's going to be okay when we make it so. Uh, so in a sense, we all need to, uh, to consider ourselves as grown-ups right now. That's what, for me, that's what all of my work is about. The more that babies and children are given just the basics, at least, of what their fundamental developmental emotional needs are, everybody gets hurt along the way sometimes. Hurt is okay. It's when... Hurt becomes damage when, when we're told we deserved it, when we're told to get over it, when we're told that nothing ever happened, when, when we're told it doesn't matter, that a, the pain doesn't matter. That's when hurt becomes damage. It rewrites really the synapses, the, the, the structure of our brain. Mm. So the more that our children's emotional needs can be at least basically met, that babies be responded to sensitively, that toddlers be given, you know, be, that we assert strong boundaries of behaviour for our toddlers, but give them the freedom to run and play and, and, and be themselves and express their emotions strongly. And the more that, you know, we, we allow primary school and high school kids to not just do what we shove down their throats, but to to pursue what they love doing, what they're passionate about. The more that we have a world that is that way for kids, those kids grow up not interested in, they grow up with so much more self-poise, self-assurance. They don't vote for table thumpers. They can see through the, they can see through the bullshit better than anybody else. Mm. And they take charge. You know, somebody that loves their work doesn't need a get-rich-quick scheme. They don't want to stop working. They love their work. They don't want to retire at 65 or whatever. They want to, you know, maybe go slower with less effort, but they want to keep going. It's not an aging population. It's a wisdom population. Mm. You know, we don't need to, to rate this planet for a get-rich-quick scheme that will help me escape my work, why would you do that when you love your work? Now, right there, I'm talking to the need to school children in a child-centered way, not in a government-centered way. Yeah. To create obedient kids that toe the line and go to the factory or whatever it is, right? Mm. Self-actualized young people. Interestingly, too, that takes care of violence in so many ways. There's, there's just an endless stream of research demonstrating very strongly that Babies and toddlers that are that have healthy attachment to their family, they grow up far less likely to be to have problems with violence. I mean, steeply less. Kids that grow up not in an authoritarian style of good boy, bad boy kind of scenario, punishment and reward. Kids that grow up with strong boundaries, but not authoritarian styles of parenting, they grow up to be a hell of a lot less violent. The, the third thing is that when kids are helped to, to study and learn what they're passionate about, what they're fascinated with, what they love, and there's a, there's a lot of different um, schooling systems that do that around the world, 
the democratic education system, the Japanese free school, that I could tell you like an endless list. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the, the emergent curriculum, curriculum, basically, where the child has a choice of the curriculum from very, very early on. And uh, they are uh, co-creating the curriculum with the teachers as they go, you know, with mentorship rather than imposition. Those kids grow up less violent. There's, um, it's a... Um, it reduces bullying in the school. So all of those things, when kids get their emotional needs met, that's how we get rid of violence um, in the world, chronic criminal violence and, and international violence as well. <sighs> if that sounds like an audacious statement to make, I'm just passing on what the science is saying. It's not even controversial. No, yeah. It's, it's so very clear, yeah. War is a kind of... I mean, the, the, the idea that we can get rid of all war and, and eliminate the need for armies, that's, that's quite a modest and completely realistic thing to ask for. But it depends on how we relate to our children, how we hold them, how we listen to them. Uh, the same thing, I put in the same category, uh, the war against the environment, because right now it's third world war against the biosphere. And it's scary. It's a very, very scary time. We, we need to learn how to live with it. We have, we have completely the technology abilities for a circular economy that leaves zero waste, zero pollution, mm -hmm. a renewable, completely renewable resources. We know how to do that. Uh, if somebody takes the foot off the throat of that, of that kind of um, progress, but the know-how is already there. I guess I'm saying there's no excuse not to go there tomorrow. No excuses at all. Don't ever let somebody tell you, oh, we're not ready for that. That's garbage. Hmm. Yeah, so childhood is the key. I know that we can't, I mean, it, we, we don't have a generation's worth of time to wait. However, if we do make it through the, the worst of the current uh, emergency, we're going to need to have civilizations that don't fight all the time, don't, not, don't fight against themselves, against each other, and against the non-human world. Yeah. Yeah. So and that that starts right now. I, 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 my my conclusion there is that one of the most powerful forms of social activism is you parenting from the heart, just what your heart says, listening to your heart's voice, as a as a mother, as a father. Most powerful form of world transformative social activism. Ah, that's excellent. That was a perfect conclusion there. Thank you. I was going to talk next about your new book, Inner Child Journeys. Sure. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what it's about? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, getting a bit excited now because we're, we're going through the editing process and the, the most difficult bits are over. We're getting close. I finished writing the manuscript. We're getting close. It should be out hopefully in about two, three months or four. Mm. And it's called Inner Child Journeys. And it's uh, for, for mums and dads, grandparents, elders, uh, teachers, anyone that has children in their life. It doesn't tell you, it's not a parenting book. It doesn't tell you how, how to uh, respond to your kids. It's a handbook that helps you to find your own inner wisdom about how to respond to your kids hmm. by tapping into your body memory. Ah, okay. Because you, you, you started life out as a kid. You know what it feels like. Your body remembers everything about being innocent, vulnerable, thrilled, fascinated, awestruck, frightened, uh, dependent. Mm -hmm. you, you've been to all of those places. You can use so empathy starts from the inside. When you can feel deeply into yourself, my goodness, that gives you a huge inroad into feeling for others, your kids included. 
So we're continually getting things triggered up from our own childhood history. So this gives you a map, a guide to, to work with that so that then parenting or teaching, looking after children is the greatest personal growth experience for you. Your kids are growing you up. Mm-hmm. I think that brings a new kind of, it's just, instead of the drudgery that a lot of people feel in parenting, it's a phenomenal adventure. If you so wish, it can be a healing process for you while all the while you are bringing up your child, as it were. Right? They're bringing you up. Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, it also seems to relate very well to what we've talked about today. Yeah, it stitches it all together, doesn't it? Hmm. Where would you like people to buy it when it's available? It's going to be available online. So the usual online stores. Mm-hmm. I, I will be publishing it through the publishing wing of, I mean, all you need to know really is Amazon and Book Depository. Uh, hopefully you'll also start to find it in, in other online places. It's going to start off as a paperback. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to, to make it into a Kindle pretty soon afterwards. I let, it, I let it live a life as a paperback for a while. I think you'll prefer it as a paperback because there's going to be some very beautiful illustrations in it. Oh, cool. It's lovely to hold paper in your hands for, for that. You know, unless you're somebody that prefers a Kindle, that's fine, but you have to wait a little bit longer for that. Uh, but I'll be announcing it. Uh, visit me on my Facebook page, which is just my name, Robin Grill, or my, my website, if I may. Yep. R-O-B-I-N. So I'm Robin with an I. Grill is G-R-I-L-L-E. RobinGrill.com. Simple. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, so I will, in addition to that, I'll put up in the show notes, so to your website, to your blog, your TEDx talk, and all the articles we've discussed today, your Facebook page, is there anywhere else that you'd suggest? Well, if you, if you want to play around on my, on my website, mm-hmm. you're so very welcome. And there's videos there that you can watch. There are, um, I'd love more people to see my music video because I had immense fun doing that. It was a song that I wrote for, for kids doing their uh, end, of the, end of high school exam, which has been made so terrifying for them mm. uh, and, and unbelievably stressful. And I really feel for them it shouldn't be that way. It should be about passion and love. So I, I wrote a song to make light of it, to, to kind of make fun of the whole damn thing. <laughs> and uh, it's called Exam Nation. So I've got that. It's uh, when you hit the videos page, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's one of the videos on it. There's a lot of articles if you if you hit publications, mm-hmm. the publications tab, scroll down to articles. There's a lot of articles there that um, I think are really helpful for people. People quite uh, I, I like to write as simply as possible, so it's not a headache for people to read. No, yeah, that easy to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It should be it should be easy. It should be like falling out of bed. Mm. Um, I think that's all I can think of to share. Okay, excellent. Well, Robin, thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on the show and share this knowledge with us. I have I've truly enjoyed speaking with you today. I, I feel like we could speak for many, many more hours. Uh, do you have any final words to end on? I'm just trying to think of what title you're going to give this talk. Will you say, from vacuum cleaners to... <laughs> Global global warming. <laughs> yeah, uh, we went from from the uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous and back, and it was wonderful. And I really really enjoyed it, <laughs> and I really appreciate your your sharing your story as well. Thank you.
it does it takes a lot to do that uh i was very very touched by your story so um i thank you for the opportunity i love chatting with you that is it for me if you enjoyed this episode you can join the discussions on our facebook and instagram pages to hear more subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone we are available on apple podcasts google play spotify and all of your favorite podcast platforms if you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com